Well, welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. We are so glad that you are with us here in the room and via the live stream. Um, Kevin gave you the info, the lowdown on the two services, so make sure that you do sign up for the uh, email if you're not on that list. Um, I was told also this morning that uh, please pick up your um, Christmas cards, so don't go that direction, go this direction, and pick up your Christmas cards there at the box. That would be very helpful. And then again, the Christmas Eve service, there's that little handout in the uh, bulletin that is meant for you to hand out. That's what it's a handout for, right? You know that. So why don't you just take that and hand it to somebody this week and say, would you like to come? I just invited somebody yesterday and uh, I actually did something with them and, and forgotten. So I just sent them a real quick text back and said, hey, I forgot to invite you. Would you like to come? And to my surprise, they said, we might do that. And, and so you never know, right? We're not responsible for that. So just uh, share that truth with people and encourage them to come. And we, you never know how they might be encouraged with the truth. All right. Uh, men uh, who needed a book. I'm looking. There's a couple of guys in the room. We, uh, on our men's ministry, uh, they're in the stairwell, just like I said they'd be. So grab that if you if you need that afterwards. And then, uh, again, continue to pray for the Andersons. There's a, uh, they're going through quite a time here, okay? I had time to talk with Nick last night. And just keep, keep them in your prayer that uh, they would get some uh, relief uh, from um, the situation that Jennifer's uh, struggling with, just basically swallowing, which is kind of an issue if you want to eat or drink anything. And, and so uh, just pray for them. All right, take your Bible and open to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 26. The text says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray again, our Father, we're so thankful to gather together and not, not open your word, and we pray that you would guide and direct us, that we would be challenged and encouraged by it. Uh, even these just two verses here at the end of the chapter uh, that are uh, very uh, applicable uh, and kind of bring together the end of this uh, 15th chapter of John. So help us to be attentive, help us to uh, learn from you, and again, we lift up the Andersons, Lord, help them, encourage their hearts, help us to uh, reach out to them and just... Uh, encourage them and uh, we just thank you for the fact that you have called us all together in the, uh, the body of christ and um, we, we just love you and uh, we love that family and so we pray your blessing on this morning in christ's name amen well again this um, morning we come to the end of the 15th chapter here that are studying the gospel of john you know uh, because we've been here a while we're at the last night of the lord's life before he is uh, executed the 11 true uh, disciples are with him, those whom he loves, he's been teaching them and instructing them and encouraging them. Uh, they've left the upper room. They're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where the Lord's going to be arrested. The whole evening began, if you might remember, back up in chapter 13 at the Feast of the Passover. Uh, Jesus, again, knows his hour has come. It's time for him to depart uh, very soon out of this world to be with the Father. And so loving these men, he has been instructing them on a variety of different issues that are near to his heart to give them hope and to give them encouragement. Uh, Judas, uh, the betrayer, has been dismissed uh, after the Lord had uh, demonstrated his tremendous love for them, even for him by girding himself with a towel, washing the disciples' feet in a condescending act of love and humiliation, because that's the same kind of, uh, that demonstration is the same kind of selfless love that Christ desires or commands his followers to demonstrate towards each other in the body of Christ. So he has encouraged them, uh, encouraged their hearts with many truths among them, uh, the fact of the person of the Holy Spirit uh, who will come, the, the Spirit whom the world cannot receive because it does not know him. Again, he's going to come. He's going to abide with them, within them as believers. <clears throat> and so, again, the Lord is trying to encourage them, right? He, he, he understands their sorrow. Uh, he's about to depart. He, he's not going to leave them alone, however, or leave them as orphans. He's going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to dwell within them, the, uh, the Helper. Uh, the one whom the Father will send in the name of Christ, the one who will teach them all things and bring to the remembrance all things that Christ has spoken or said to them. And then in uh, chapter 14, he gives them the promise of peace, uh, which is something that we desperately need in this fallen world. And then he gives them also the promise of his return. Chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. 
do I give to you? Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You have heard that I said to you, I go away, and, but I will come again, or and I will come again to you. And now I've told you before it comes to pass, so that when it comes to pass, you may believe. So again, he wants them to know in advance what's going to happen. He wants them not to be caught off guard. He wants them to know that he's not caught off guard. He knows everything that's going to happen, so he tells them. So they might continue to have confidence in him. They might continue to believe that he is exactly who he claimed to be, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And again, all the events that are about to unfold in the next few hours, they don't know uh, because they don't have omniscience, but he knows. Uh, again, they've not, they will not catch him off guard. They haven't caught him off guard. They don't catch the Father off guard. Again, they're all part of the plan, all part of the eternal plans and purposes of God for the redemption of mankind. And then again, at the top of the 15th chapter, the Lord reasserts his deity. They need to hear this from him one more time, where he says, I am the true vine, my father's the the vine dresser. I am. I told you it's the proclamation of deity. It's the affirmation of deity. Jesus is saying, look, they would have understood it because they, uh, in the Old Testament context, they would have understood Jesus saying, I'm the great I am. That's me. I'm God incarnate. I'm God come in the flesh. So he makes that proclamation, then he speaks to them about the nature of saving faith, how really to identify somebody who's part of the body of Christ and someone who's not. He uses that analogy of the branch that doesn't bear fruit, that is taken away and burned, and the branch that bears fruit and that is pruned so it can bear more fruit. And again, in the context of the story, he gives that analogy because he has to give an explanation for Judas, for the defection of Judas that is upcoming. Uh, again, they don't know that Judas is a betrayer at this moment in the context of the story, but he's going to reveal himself very soon. Judas is going to betray the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane with a kiss. The religious leaders are going to come with uh, with soldiers. They're going to unjustly arrest Christ. They're going to unjustly have a an, eagle, uh, an illegal trial, and then they're going to murder, murder him. Uh, they're going to murder an innocent man via crucifixion uh, at the hands of the Romans. So again, the Lord doesn't want his men to be caught off guard. He doesn't want them to uh, not understand that he knows. I mean, he knows everything. He knows what is coming. He knows what's about to transpire. And he wants them to have peace. He wants them just to continue to trust him. Just to continue to trust him and trust the Father, even in the midst of the difficulties that are just literally hours away that are about to unfold, that they have no knowledge of, nor do they have any understanding of. He wants them to trust. And isn't that the challenge for all of us? No matter what the issue is, to trust God in the midst of difficulties? Because living in a fallen world, we always find ourselves in situations where we don't know why. When we find ourselves in situations where we don't know why or whatever is happening to us, why this is occurring, then we have to go back and go to those things that we do know to be true We have to go back and fill our minds and speak to our hearts about the true nature and the character of God, the one who loves us eternally. The one who loves us eternally, the one who is merciful, the one who is compassionate, the one who is gracious, the one who is long-suffering with us. The one who is sovereign over all the affairs of the world, again, on a personal level, national level, international level. There's nothing that catches God off guard, not one thing. And we need to be encouraged by that. We need to encourage ourselves with that truth. We need to encourage each other. With that truth, we need to be encouraged and encourage each other with the fact that God is sovereign and by his very nature, the one who has first loved us, loving us not when we were his friends, but actually loving us when we were his enemies, alienated and strangers from him, under his just condemnation and wrath because of our sin, but he loved us, right? He loved us. He did indeed love us. He sent Christ into the world. He sent Christ to stand in our place, to bear the punishment that was due us so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be reconciled, so that we might have a saving relationship with God through Christ because God desires that none would perish, but all would come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants that kind of saving relationship with men. And it's the proclamation of the truth. Uh, It's the proclamation of the truth of what we believe is the proclamation of the truth, what these 11 disciples believed. John 15, 3, Jesus says, You are already clean because, here it is, of the word which I have spoken to you. So to the 11, he affirms their salvation simply because they believed him. They believed what Christ said to be true on every subject, on every issue. No doubt at times, just like us, their faith was weak, but they still trusted Christ. They trusted God the Father. They trusted his word. They they trusted the the nature of his being. And that's the nature of saving faith, right? Abraham believed 
God and it was counted to him to righteousness. We just call it the belief. So the Lord spoke about the nature of saving faith. He spoke about the importance of abiding in him. Told them that they're going to be closely connected with him. That his life is going to flow through them. And they're going to bear much fruit for God. And then in several different times in this evening, he reminds or commands his followers the importance of loving one another. He does it back in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. He does it in chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And he repeats it again in verse 15 or verse 17 of John 15. This command, or this I command you, that you love one another. So it really has been a remarkable evening. It's been an evening full of instruction, an evening full of hope, an evening full of uh, encouragement, love. The Lord has lavished upon his uh, true followers truth. He's made amazing, staggering promises to them who belong to him. And to all of those of us who, by extension, believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I told you last time, there's going to be a dramatic shift in the evening. There's a dramatic shift in the narrative from love to hate. The word hate is used numerous times in the verses subsequent, following down to verse 25, the word persecution is used a couple times. Because that's the reality of those who follow Christ in this world. We're loved by the Father. Loved by the Lord Jesus Christ is going to lay down his life for us. But we're also hated by this world. As I told you, the world, by definition, is this anti-God, anti-Christ system. It's the, it's the system ruled by the devil. It's the system that stands in opposition uh, to God and in rebellion to all things uh, related to God. Everything related to God. So the followers of God in Christ are loved by God, but strongly hated by the world. And as you know, countless numbers of believers throughout the history of the church have been persecuted and abused, even martyred for their faith in Christ. Even in the day in which we live, by some estimates, there's up to 100 million professing Christians in the world today that are under some kind of form of a persecution. A lot of them come from Muslim countries. A lot of Christians in Muslim countries face persecution. But there's others who face persecution all around the world in different kind of political situations. Uh, they face persecution. And as we know, we're beginning to see even more of it here in the United States, right? Just a couple of days ago, the White House celebrated in Sodom and Gomorrah-like fashion the signing of the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, which, like most things the government promotes, the, the title is exactly opposite of what it says. And in that act, they have doubly enshrined in-law so-called quote-unquote gay marriage, demanding that it be recognized and affirmed across all 50 states. It was signed in to law without any kind of protection for religious objections. In fact, it was signed into law uh, in the uh, um, to, to, in uh, rejection of any kind of religious amendments added to it. So religious amendments or exceptions were rejected. So basically what the law is stating is that it's going to demand you to call good evil and to call evil good. It's going to demand you to call evil good and good evil. It's going to demand that you celebrate and embrace any kind and all kinds of perversion that the depraved mind wants to entertain. As you might be aware of, the White House also brought in a so-called drag queen to quote-unquote to the celebration, right? Really to the celebration of the rebellion against God. Uh, this drag queen openly promotes and advocates the abuse of children. It used to be in one, one time in this country we at least protected kids, but not anymore. It's open season. Open season. But one day the reality is all these people who gathered together and cheered and clapped hands for themselves in their rebellion against God, one day all these people are going to stand in judgment before God for their wickedness and their perversion. But until that day, there's going to be an ever-increasing pressure by the government in this country against all who hold to godly biblical standards of morality. So we should not be surprised by that. But we should prepare for it. Because the Lord says all those who desire to follow him in this world are going to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The Lord says that we will be hated on account of his name. Paul also said the same thing. All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
persecuted. So the last couple of times we were together, we saw the reality, that, that reality, and then we started to look at the reasons why that's a reality in this world, why the world hates Christ, and why the world hates those who are followers of Christ. But to begin our review, I want to go back to verse 17, because that's how the Lord set this whole, whole thing up. Verse 17, again, the command, This I command you, that you love one another. In a world that hates you, in a world that hates God, in a world that hates Christ, in a world that hates the truth found in the word of God. Again, the Lord reminds us of the importance, the immense importance of loving each other in the body of Christ. A reality that cannot be overestimated by way of command of the scripture, by way of command of the Savior. We are to love each other because we are all we have in this fallen world. We need to get along. And then the Lord gives three reasons why the world rejects and hates Christians. Number one, the world hates those who are not part of it. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it also hated me before it hated you. If you are not in the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So it's by the electing grace and mercy of God that we have been taken out of this world. We are no longer of the world. We don't belong to this realm. We've been chosen out of it by God and for Christ. We've been united with Christ. Again, we're no longer part of this unbelieving world system and rebellion against God. We have been transformed and changed. Our eyes have been opened to the truth. Now we're co-laborers with Christ. We're, we're lovers of the truth. Therefore, the world can't stand us because we're not a part of it anymore and we won't continue in sin with them. We won't continue in their rebellion against God with them. And we will not call evil good. Amen? We will not call evil good. Men have gone to the stake for standing for the truth. And we're not going to bow to a godless, Christless, truth-hating system. We will not bow. What does this say on the front of the front of the text of the, the bulletin? Nothing else matters but God's glory. If we're called, I'm not looking for trouble, but if we're called to, to endure trouble for the sake of righteousness and the sake of Christ, then we should count it a privilege to suffer for Christ. We're not bowing. We're not cowing down to wickedness. The world hates those who are not a part of it. Number two, the world hates believers because it hated Jesus Christ. Again, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. So again, the world hates Christ. The world hated Christ in the context of the story uh, led by the Jewish religious leaders. They wanted to kill him. They repeatedly attempted to do so until they were finally successful, again, by way of crucifixion via via the the hands of the Romans. And because the world hated Christ, he says, uh, you, as uh, you, uh, one of his followers, you you can expect that they're going to hate you also. You can count on it. Again, the reality is prepare for it. Because if you represent me in the world, Christ says, if you represent me in this world that hated me, the world is going to hate you because you're loved by me because now you're part of my family. And you're not like them. And thirdly, Christ says, the world hates believers because they don't know God. Verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Again, most of the persecution at the time is coming from the religious leaders. And I told you that one of the great impediments, one of the greatest impediments, perhaps, to a true saving faith coming to a knowledge of the truth is religion. False religions, false religious systems that reject the revelation found in the Bible. False religions, false religious systems that reject the person of Jesus Christ, that reject salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. Now, there are a lot of people in the world that call themselves religious. A lot of people who think they know God, but they reject Christ. 
And therefore, when they reject Christ, they reject God's only means of reconciliation through the substitutionary death of the only Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, when they reject Christ, what they're showing us is they don't know God. And men who don't know God, what they do is they create an idol in their own minds, and then they worship that false deity that they have created with their fallen minds. And most of the time, that false deity can be broken down to the fact that men worship themselves. Men set themselves up to be their own God. Men set themselves up to be their own standard of right and wrong. Men set themselves up as the standard of what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. And again, because they rejected the truth, they reject the person of the truth. They don't know God. They don't know Christ. Again, it's the Lord Jesus in chapter 17, verse 3 says, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Well, most men don't know God and most men don't know Christ, so most men don't possess eternal life, whatever religious system they are fond of. And Christ repeatedly warned throughout his ministry that in people, that unless people believe that I am, he said, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. And again, he's saying, I'm God come in the flesh, and unless you believe that, you're going to die in your sin. And that's what most people do because they willfully reject God's greatest revelation, truth incarnate through the person of truth, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's nothing that awaits them, these rejectors of the truth, these rejectors of Christ, nothing except judgment, eternal condemnation, eternal damnation. Because Jesus Christ is the only way to be reconciled to God the Father. Our Lord himself saying, I am the way, the truth and the life and no one no one comes to the father but through me therefore apart from repentance and faith in the person of the lord jesus christ alone there is no salvation possible that's biblical truth most men don't believe that but that doesn't change the truth most men don't know christ most men don't know god the father in spite of what they may claim it's because they rejected the truth and they believe a lie. Now, all men across the board are without excuse because of creation, because of God's revelation, because of God and his uh, convicting conscience uh, declaring the fact that all men know that he exists. But these men here in the context of the story are especially without excuse because they were eyewitnesses. But they, they were there and heard the words and saw the work of Christ they themselves, again, eyewitnesses, verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them in the context, right? The religious leaders, Israel. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates the Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. Again, the religious leaders of the day that led that country, they had witnessed firsthand the miraculous power of Christ. They'd seen his love, they'd seen his compassion, they'd seen his grace, they heard his teaching, all of which unmistakably testified of his deity. But what they wickedly concluded is that Jesus is from Satan. Therefore, they rejected him in total. When they rejected him in total, they willfully rejected the full face of God's revelation, or the revelation, the full revelation of God's grace to men. They rejected the person of Jesus Christ. They're without excuse. And the rejection of Christ is unforgivable. It is inexcusable, and it's utterly wicked. But again, none of this catches God off guard whatsoever. None of it's outside the sovereign plan, his sovereign plan, verse 25. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. It's out of Psalm 35, Psalm 69. They have done this in order that it may be fulfilled what is written in their law. They hated me without cause. Nothing's changed, right? The world then, the world now hates Christ for no valid reason. It does, though. The reason the world hates Christ is that he confronts them with the reality of who they are. He confronts them with the reality of who they are and who he really is. And the world hates Jesus Christ because he exposes their sin. He confronts them with the reality that they're sinners deeply in need of a Savior. 
and that there's nothing that they can do to save themselves except to repent and place their faith in him. But men who love their sin, they hate the truth. They hate that truth. They reject that truth. Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Therefore, they rejected Christ. They hated him. And they reject those who represent Christ. And they hate us. They murdered him. And they want to murder you. That's truth. So how do you live in this kind of world? How do you get along in this kind of world? Again, it's the night before the Lord's going to be arrested. I mean, just literally hours before he's arrested and crucified. Disciples don't know what's about to unfold. He does. And as bad as it is at the moment, it's going to get exponentially worse in just a few hours. They are already filled with sorrow and fear right now. He's told them that he's going to depart from them. They're convinced they're going to die with him. Right? We'd rather die with you than live without you. Remember the... And Jesus over in Matthew chapter 26 he says the reality is fellows you're all abandoning me Matthew 26 verse uh, 33 Peter answered and said to him even though all may fall away because of you I will never fall away Jesus said to him truly I say to you that this very night before the cock crows you shall deny me three times and Peter said to him even if I have to die with you I will, do not, I will not deny you and all the disciples said the same thing Hearts are willing. Flesh will be very weak. In fact, if you just look down there are a couple of verses in chapter 16, the Lord's going to say that very same thing there. There in the context of what we're looking at here in the book of John. John 16, verse 32. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each one to his own home, and to leave me alone. You're all leaving me. He says, yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. Now again, the Lord's about to face unimaginable suffering. But he's not turning his attention towards himself. He's selflessly concerned with them, his friends. And all evening long, he's trying to reassure them. He's trying to comfort them. He, he wants them to know that they are going to face opposition in this world. But he wants them to know, again, they're going to face opposition in this world, but they're not alone. They won't have to face the world's opposition on their own strength. Again, remember back up to chapter 14, verse 16. I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another helper. Here it is, that he may be with you forever. That's the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it doesn't know him or behold him. But you know him because he is forever abiding within you and he will be in you. Again, in that same chapter, chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me in the works that I do, he shall do also, but greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. He says, look, you're going to even do greater things than I do, because you have someone with you, someone within you. Chapter 16, verse 7, uh, here in the near context of the verses we're looking at, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the helper should not come to you. But if I go away, I'll send him to you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that the person of the Holy Spirit whom God gives, he's really a pledge, a pledge of our salvation. Ephesians 1 says, In him you also have to listen to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view of redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Lord Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Paul again, Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. We're not alone. Our fight's not against flesh and blood. We're not even the ones who's uh, to engage in the battle. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Again, when Christ leaves, he's not leaving them by themselves. He says, look, I'm going to send the person of the Holy Spirit who is a pledge of your salvation to know this whole thing is true. And I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to empower you. He's going to produce fruit in you, righteous fruit, 
because that's what happens when you have a relationship with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You change. You now produce fruit of righteousness. He says, look, I'm going to send to the person the Holy Spirit is going to dwell within you. And, and again, you'll do greater works than I even did when I was here. Uh, because, again, you're going to give continual testimony is kind of the idea. And this person who dwells within you, who'll be with you forever, who's promised to never leave you or forsake you, he's going to empower you to face the stiff opposition from this world. Again, this world that is under the power of the prince of the air, that is uh, uh, um, uh, Satan and, and his cohorts, both human and demonic. Who are in rebellion against God. So again, how do we live in a fallen world that is full of hatred towards Christ, hatred towards Christ's followers? How do we successfully endure uh, the persecution that is coming? How are we to be faithful and uh, to preach the gospel to a God-hating, Christ-hating, truth-hating world? And again, in a world that wants to shut us up, a world that he wants to kill us. Well, again, it's going to be the person of the Holy Spirit. Who's going to encourage us? The one who's going to empower, empower us? The one who's going to help us in our time of opposition and difficulty? It's the person of the Holy Spirit who's going to ensure our success in the matter of evangelism as faithful witnesses for Christ. And as we come to verses 26 and 27, our text for this morning, I just want you to note the two, two phrases, he will and you will. He will and you will. Verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. Verse 27, and you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. He will and you will. He will bear witness of me and you will bear witness of me. So again, as the person of the Holy Spirit who is in view in these verses, Empowering the Christian to stand up under the hostility of the world and empowering the Christian to be a faithful witness to the person of Christ in a lost world. In fact, I told you last time the word martyr uh, in, in the Greek, we get our English word witness. And we understand martyr is one who loses his life because of the hatred of the world against Christ. Because of their testimony for Christ. And although the world has been persecuted, or the, the world has persecuted Christ and Christianity from its very inception, the truth is also there's been a faithful witness and a willingness of the followers of Christ to suffer for the name of Christ and advance the gospel in spite of the persecution. In fact, it was the early church leader Tertullian who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was the great work of faithful gospel witness that changed the world. And the Lord's going to begin his work with this band of weak, unimpressive disciples who out of obedience to and love for Christ, under his strength, the church is going to advance. The message of the gospel is going to advance. These witnesses, again, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth whom the Lord would send out, would indeed turn the world upside down and advance the gospel through out the world and let me remind you that we are all beneficiaries of their effort right they and other faithful men and women who've come before us again men who've literally given their life's blood for the gospel men who've literally stood and given their life blood for the truth men who have literally stood and died giving us a bible that we can read in our own language freely and in this country at the moment without overt persecution, but it's probably coming. So I would encourage you as best as you can to hide God's word in your heart. Now again, in the context, he just warned them of persecution, right? They're going to be hated by the world. They're going to be hated on account of their association with him. That's 18 through 25. Then you have this little bit in the middle here, verses 26 and 27. He's talking about the... The, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And then, kind of sandwiched on the other side, and he's going to talk about persecution again. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you, that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you, that when the hour comes, or their hour comes, that you may remember that I told you of them, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning, or 
And uh, these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So look, I'm just trying to forewarn you. I I just want you to know the reality of the world. Suffering, presence of the Holy Spirit, suffering. Suffering is going to be great. But there's also going to be an effective witness of the gospel. Through these disciples. How is that possible? Well, just drop down to verse 7 of chapter 16. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So there's going to be hostility towards the followers of Christ. That's a promise. But when the Holy Spirit comes into the world, he will convict blind, dead, hopeless, helpless, uh, this helpless world come under the conviction of the truth. They'll come under the conviction of sin through the proclamation of the truth. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. And our responsibility, listen, our responsibility is just to be faithful. Just be faithful. Just live life faithfully. Just trust God. Trust Christ. No matter what challenges you face in life. Just trust him in the midst of physical problems. Just trust him in the midst of financial difficulty. Just trust him in the midst of rebellious children or whatever issue there might be in your life. Trust him. Be faithful in public. And when God gives you opportunity, proclaim truth. We're not in charge of conversion. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. It's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction of sin and transformation of life from repentance. So how do we live in a fallen world? A world that hates God, a world that hates Christ, a world that hates truth and hates us even to the point of persecution, even perhaps possibly our imprisonment or death. How are we going to overturn the darkness? How are we going to dispel the blindness? How are we going to awaken the dead? Well, let me tell you what, you can't do that. Neither can I. By our own power, we don't have that. But the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit will. Our testimony, our Christian witness is necessary, but it's absolutely powerless without the presence and the supernatural activity of God's own own, uh, spirit. Because he's the only one who can illuminate the mind. He's the only one who can confront the rebellious, right? The rebellious will of man. He's the only one who can waken the dead spiritually. Which brings us to our text proper, verse 26. When the helper comes... Who I'll send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. So the world's going to hate. And the followers of Christ are going to have to endure hatred and endure persecution. Hated the Father, hated the Son, they're going to hate you. But the Spirit's coming, the Helper. Jesus says himself that he'll send the Helper, that he will be sent by Christ, he'll be sent by the Father. Again, in, in essence, the very same thing that he said back up in chapter uh, 14, verse 16. I'll request the Father, and he'll give you another helper. Uh, verse 26 here, really, is the emphasis is on the activity of the Son who's going to send the Spirit. When the helper comes, that word help, helper, parakletos, it speaks of one who's called alongside to, to aid us, to empower us. When the helper comes, I will send to you. From the Father, right? I will send. Future tense. Why? Because at the moment, Pentecost hadn't arrived yet. In the context of the story. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth. But let me tell you what. There's nothing more that the unbelieving, postmodern, relative world in which we live in needs more than a strong, unadulterated dose of absolute God's truth, right? We're not calling evil good. We're just not. 
I'm not going to speak lies. God made them male and female. Somebody who just said that last week, a journalist in Europe, and they've arrested her, threatening her with jail time. Coming to a neighborhood near you. Daniel and the boys, when they were hauled off in the captivity, made up their minds in advance what they would do, what they would not do. How they would not defile themselves with the king's choice food. How they would not fall down. Now, man, we're going to turn the oven up. Not my deal. I really wish you wouldn't, but not my deal. You do what you do. We do what we do. The spirit of truth has been sent. The spirit of truth lives within us. There's nothing more that is needed in this unbelieving postmodern relative world than a strong, unadulterated dose of God's truth. Centered on the gospel, centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Again, it's a message that is genuinely or generally met with hostility and opposition. But... Nevertheless, being faithful to Christ demands that as believers we speak boldly with conviction the truth. And we're able to do so through the power of the Holy Spirit, through his presence. Paul told the Ephesians, Ephesians 6 verse 18, with all prayers and petitions, pray at all times in the Spirit, with this in view, be on alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the uh, opening of my mouth and make known Uh, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for I am an ambassador in chains in proclaiming in, uh, ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I to speak. Right? Pray for me too, Paul said. That I I open my my, my mouth and just speak boldly the truth. Whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Whole world lies in the power of uh, of the evil one. The whole world has been deceived by Satan and his lies. He's a murderer and a father of lies. And what the world desperately needs to hear is the truth. They desperately needed to be pointed to the person of the truth. The one who said, I am the way and the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Again, the world needs to be confronted with true truth, and that's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's mankind's only hope person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, again, whom the world cannot receive, will not receive. He reveals truth, he confronts sin, and he conquers all the lies of the devil. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth, next line, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. Now, I'm not going to get caught out in the weeds here, if you know anything or familiar at all with church history, that little phrase who proceeds from the fathers caused quite a bit of controversy and division in the history of the church. In fact, it's been a battle going on since about 1054 that neither side can uh, come to a resolution over. It caused one of the divisions between the East and the Western churches. I'm not going to the weeds here. I just want you to understand that we understand that God is one, yet three members, right? Three members of the Godhead, co-equal, co-eternal, in power, authority, all the right to be worshipped, all one God, three persons. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. Again, that's the mission of the Holy Spirit when he comes into the world, to bear witness of Christ, to give testimony concerning the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the Holy Spirit's mission, but also the Father does that. The Father gives testimony to the person of Jesus Christ. He speaks about him all throughout the Old Testament, right? The Hebrew Scripture. It's the theme of that revelation, the coming of the person of the the Messiah, who is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father gives testimony. Father gives testimony concerning Son, the Son through the divine work that the Son did when he was incarnate here on the earth that the Father gave him to do. John 5.36, Jesus speaking to his adversaries in that context, he says, the works which the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has borne witness of me, and you've neither heard his voice any time or seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you. You don't believe in him who he sent. 
You search the scriptures, but you think you, that in them you have eternal life, and these bear witness of me, and you are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. I mean, it's pretty tough when you're religious and you miss the truth. You spend your entire life trying to study the truth, and at the end of the life, end of your life, you've missed it completely. That's these guys, the religious leaders of Israel. You study, right? You, you search the scripture. You think just because you have a Bible on your shelf that you've never opened, you think that's some kind of magical, mystical tool in your belt, like a, a totem up on, the, on a mantle over the fireplace. You don't know the person of Jesus Christ, but you go to church a lot. You search the scripture, and you think you have eternal life. These bear witness of me, and you're unwilling to come to me. That's why I'm going to preach on, on uh, uh, um, Christmas Eve, Lord willing. Come to Christ. That's the one message we have for the world. Come to Christ. Come unto me, Christ says. Religion is an impediment if it doesn't take you to the truth. And what people need is the truth. The person of the Holy Spirit, he's the spirit of truth. He exposes truth. God exposes truth. Again, God testifies to the person of Jesus Christ by the entire Old Testament scripture that pointed to him. He testifies concerning the work, the divine work that he gave him to do. Uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2, he says, uh, Jesus, uh, says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which he performed in your midst. You guys rejected him. God also gave verbal testimony, audible testimony to the person of Jesus Christ at his baptism, at his Transfiguration, both a voice comes out of the heaven saying, This is my beloved son, whom I will please. Again, Peter reflecting his experience at the transfiguration. Says this second Peter one sixteen, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as was made. To him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So the father gives witness. He gives testimony to Christ through the scripture. He gives divine testimony through the works of Christ. He gives divine testimony through direct testimony, audible testimony. And the father gives testimony or witness to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by sending the helper the person of the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he'll bear witness of me. When the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, comes, his mission, he will bear witness of me. Now, the Holy Spirit does that both objectively and subjectively. Again, objectively through the Word, right? Through the testimony of the text of Scripture. Second Peter one twenty one. no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So we got that objective in the word testimony. But also the person of the Holy Spirit works subjectively, works in the souls of men, the hearts of men and women. He points them to Christ and he confirms his word as truth. That's what Paul meant when he came to Corinth and he said, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come in superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, Paul also, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Again, back into John, John 14, verse 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That's the mission of the Holy Spirit in the world to testify to the person of Jesus Christ. He does it through the word external, but he also does it in our heart through that word proclaimed. That's why John says in 1 John, chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know the truth. As for you, the anointing which you've received from him abides in you. You have no, one to need, uh, have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you all things that is true. And is not a lie, just as he taught you, and you abide in him. First John 5, 7, the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. 
We love the Bible around here because it points us to the person of Christ and it's God's word. And the Holy Spirit takes that. The Holy Spirit, who is the power behind the pen and all the texts that we pick up and work our way through, he wants us to know the truth. He wants to point to the person of Christ. James Boyce points out the fact that at the time of the Protestant Reformation, there was a, a, one of the slogans that the Reformers used was sola scriptura, right? It means scripture alone. But it meant more than just... Uh, it meant more to them than just the idea that God had revealed himself to men through the Bible, though he had done that. What it meant to them is, having, uh, is that the Bible, having been given by God through the channel of the Holy Spirit, the Bible speaks with authority, the authority of God. Scripture alone, solo scriptura. The Reformers believed, based on their own experience, based upon their own study of the Word of God, and again, based on the explicit teaching of the Scripture, that the Bible interprets itself to God's people due to the fact that the Spirit is in the text, that the Spirit is alive. The Holy Spirit continues to speak in and through the Word to the hearts of those who belong to Him. And as Boyce points out, that discovery, listen, that discovery freed the Reformers from the improper and debilitating dependence on tradition of the church from the decrees of the church, the decrees of councils. Now, that's not to say that some decrees and some councils throughout the history of the church are not helpful. Some have been. Some have been of value. A lot of them have not been. But ultimately, what the Reformers came to the conclusion was they were ultimately unnecessary because God is not only able to teach, but God does indeed teach people through his word without the help of any external councils. I'm glad you can read Hebrew. I'm glad you can read Greek. I'm thrilled to death you've gone to seminary, but you don't need to have that education to read this book and for this book to be understood because God desires that you would know the truth. So as helpful as those things might be on some level, they're not necessary. And when you fall into the category of saying they are necessary, then you've just kind of crossed the line. God wants you to know the truth. God reveals himself. Wasn't it Tyndale who said, by the time I'm done translating the New Testament, that the plowboy will know more than the Pope? God wants to be known. And if you've got to go into some secret mystical society to get an advanced knowledge of the truth, that's called Gnosticism. A lot of people who are Protestant Gnostics, and I'm not bagging Christian education. I'm not saying there's something wrong about it. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying when you think you need that or you've got to have that to understand truth, you've just crossed that line. I'm not saying be ignorant either. But God wants you to know the truth. It's available. Even without the notes on the bottom of the page. For all you MacArthur Bible study holders. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know, there was a day before there was a MacArthur Bible sitting, or Bible, whatever. God wants you to know the truth. God has also given to the, to the church gifted teachers and preachers men to help us understand a lot of different things you understand. I got that. But the Reformers were convinced that God speaks through his word. They call it the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Again, stressing that subjective internal counterpart to the external Revelation embodied in the pages of the written word of God. God speaks through his word continually. Through the Holy Spirit, we know that. We know that true by our own experience. 1 Corinthians 2.12 Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. We have the word. And the helper comes, whom I'll send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. Again, that's his mission in the world. He points to Christ. The Spirit of truth points to Christ. He bears witness of me. So, in spite of persecution that will come, that has come in the world because of men's hatred for Christ and hatred for the truth, the disciples can rest in the fact that there are going to be there's going to be a faithful witness that's going to come from them, right? Even though they're going to be persecuted. Holy Spirit's going to make sure that happens. Spirit of truth is going to make sure that happens. He will bear witness of me. 
which again is promising the success of the gospel in spite of all satanic opposition. And Christ says concerning the Holy Spirit, he will bear witness of me. So again, I think we're reminded both as the church collectively and our responsibility individually in a lost world that's in rebellion against God. We just point people to Christ. We're we're not into politics or political activism. We're not into social reform. We're certainly not interested in teaching people how to live their best lives now. We're we're not about meeting people's felt needs. We're all about Jesus Christ. Amen? We're all about Jesus Christ. And when men make the emphasis, or the church makes the emphasis on, or the focus of their ministry on other people rather than the person of Jesus Christ, what they do is they rob men of what they desperately need most. And what men desperately need most is a greater understanding, a greater vision, a bigger vision of God. A deeper understanding of the person of Christ. Who he is, why he has come. Their desperate need of him. I'm convinced that the vast majority of the people who stand outside the church and outside the realm of salvation do so because they've never seen their need of Christ. And that's because, in part, there are so few people pointing people to the person of Christ. His glorious person, his deity, his humanity his glorious work, his substitutionary death and sacrifice for those who have repented and believed upon him, his love, his triumphal return, the fact that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world, mankind's only hope. When we emphasize the person of Christ, we emphasize the glory of the person of Christ, then we're confronting sinners with their need of the Savior, confronting them with their sin and the there are consequences that unless they would repent, unless they would be rescued by faith alone in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll face judgment. And when we preach towards men and when we preach felt needs, all we're doing is allowing the sinner to stay in love with their iniquity. Ignorant to the truth, ignorant of justification by faith, lacking an understanding of biblical salvation. That's why so many people inside the walls of the quote-unquote church and so many people who never dare to darken its doors are facing the consequences of an eternity without Christ because they don't know him. They don't know him. That's why Paul said, look, when he came to Corinth, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and crucified. Not putting on a dog and pony show. Not doing smoke, mirrors. What people need is a proper understanding of Christ, a proper understanding of the cross. Because the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ alone is the power of God and the salvation, right? That's where the gospel's from. And men are desperately in need of coming to an understanding of the gospel and desperately in need of an understanding of the person of Christ, but men are desperately in need of understanding repentance. Save this church and the various ministries of this church. When's the last time you turned the radio on or listened to a tape or whatever and some guy was talking about repentance? Repentance, turning away from sin, turning away from unrighteousness, being born again, coming to new life in Christ. That was the message that John the Baptist preached when he went out at the beginning of his ministry, the need of repentance. That was the message that Christ preached at the outset of his public ministry. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Christ sent the disciples out, Mark 6, verse 12, he sent them out preaching that men should repent. When the religious leaders confronted Jesus, taking him to task over associating with sinners and the low lives of humanity as they would see them, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus Christ spoke Luke fifteen seven, Luke fifteen ten about how much rejoicing there is in heaven, how much rejoicing takes place there when one sinner repents. After his resurrection, he declares Luke 24, verse 47, that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. 
the dawn of the church, the birth of the church, first sermon. Peter preached Acts 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Guess what the second sermon was he preached? You can get it. Repentance. Acts 3.19, repent. Therefore return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. When the apostles were persecuted and brought before the religious council and commanded not to preach any more the name of Christ, Acts 5.27, when they'd be brought to them, they stood before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and behold, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and tend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men for and the God of our fathers raised uh, Jesus, uh, raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted at his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to slay them. The reaction by the unbelieving world to the message of repentance is always going to be hostility. So, it doesn't change what we're called to do. Because the Bible demands that sinners be broken over the sin, turn away from the sin, and come to Christ. The Bible teaches that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, men must be confronted with the truth. And that's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. When his helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, this spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he's going to bear witness of me. It's interesting. In Acts 26, it says, what's he going to do when he bears witness? He's going to open men's eyes so they may turn from darkness to light. From the dominion of Satan to God in order that they might receive forgiveness of sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what who are indwelled by the Spirit does because that's why he goes immediately. He links the witness of the Holy Spirit with faithfulness. And Jesus brings attention to the fact that the disciples themselves are going to bear faithful witness to the world. Verse 27, you will bear witness also because you've been with me from the beginning. So again, this testimony that they're going to give, it's going to have a reaction. They're going to be martyred. Remember I told you that? All of them except one? But they were faithful. They were faithful to what God had commanded them to do. Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Faithful to the command, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Lord says, You shall receive power from the Spirit. When he comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even the remotest parts of the earth. And again, that's exactly what these men did in the context, these 11. Because believers are the final link in the chain, if you want, or if you will, to the witness of Christ in the world. Father gives testimony to Christ. The Holy Spirit gives testimony to Christ. Christ gives testimony to himself because it's true. So do believers. As they're empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit. You have been with me from the beginning. Again, these men had walked with him for three years, three and a half years, right? During his entire ministry on the earth. They went with him everywhere he went. Saw his compassion, they saw his love, they saw his supernatural power that he possessed that could only come from God. They heard him teach. They came to the conclusion that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And therefore they acknowledged that truth and they acknowledged that need that all men have if men desire to be saved come to a proper understanding of Christ. So, this morning, God has called us. He has called us to be the recipients of his grace and mercy through the forgiveness of sin found in Christ, but he's also chosen us to be the means in our generation to reach God's elect amongst the lost. So we are his ambassadors, and we get in line just as those have done before us, and we just proclaim the truth.
Romans 10, 13, whoever call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they're sent? Just as is written, how beautiful are the feet who bring glad tidings of good things. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We're the only people on the planet that know the truth. Our responsibility is to proclaim that truth. We don't convert. God does that. We don't convict. The Holy Spirit does that. We just step up to the witness stand and say, look, this is the truth. That's our responsibility. Christ says, Matthew 10, verse 32, Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my fathers in heaven. Verse 33, but whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. Somebody once said the greatest impediment to evangelism is a disobedient believer that never shares his faith with anyone. May that not be found true among us, huh? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for our time in your word this morning. Thankful for these two verses that point us to the person of the Holy Spirit who is our helper, whom you have given, who has come, who lives within us forever who empowers us to be truthful and faithful. Help us to rely upon him. Help us to have in focus your honor, your glory, first and foremost, as you work out the salvation of men's souls whom you have called from eternity and time. Help us to be faithful, to honor Christ in all that we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.